0: To Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to Little Girl Blue, written by Rodgers and Hart in 1935, and here performed by Nina Simone, which opens musically, perhaps mockingly, with the Christmas carol Good King Wenceslas, a song about a righteous king who's supposed to have risen every night from his noble bed and with bare feet gone around to God's churches to give alms generously to widows, orphans, those in prison and afflicted by every difficulty, so much so that he was considered not a prince, but the father of all the wretched. Of course, as one of the wretched, the song counsels the little girl to simply surrender, as all you can count on is the raindrops that fall on little girl blue.
1: Sit there.
0: That Little Girl Blue comes tonight in the form of Alfred, the protagonist of Margaret Atwood's novel The Handmaid's Tale, turned film in 1990 and starring Natasha Richardson, now turned into the longer form television serial produced by Hulu. For this interchange, I borrowed everything, and in a way this is a comment on the repetitions of history. I've borrowed from my first program on WFHB, The Custom House. In 2013, I interviewed Pernima Bose, associate professor in both the English and International Studies departments at Indiana University, about Margaret Atwood's dystopian fiction to coincide with a Books Unbound production of the novel. And of course, the discussion is timely and relevant in light of the seemingly eternal recurrence of theocratic impulses in the human, especially when those impulses are useful to men in power. I've also borrowed the music off the soundtrack to the 1990 film of The Handmaid's Tale. And here's something I borrowed from Melville in The Confidence Man, the idea why folks read novels and go to plays. These must conform to reality, but offer a kind of hyperbole upon it. Quote, in books of fiction, readers look not only for more entertainment, but at bottom even for more reality than real life itself can show. Thus, though they want novelty, they want nature too but nature unfettered, exhilarated, in effect, transformed. In this way of thinking, the people in a fiction, like the people in a play, must dress as nobody exactly dresses, talk as nobody exactly talks, act as nobody exactly acts. It is with fiction, as with religion, it should present another world, and yet one to which we feel the tie. And finally, I've borrowed Margaret Atwood. She will appear here tonight courtesy of a 2006 interview with Bill Moyers. She should have the first word. Here's her response to those who might object to the assertion that the catastrophe of The Handmaid's Tale cannot happen here. It already has.
2: Well, the Salem witchcraft trial is, in my opinion, one of the foundation events of American history. And uh, it was an event, we could call it a clash between mythology and politics, if you, if you like, because it depended very much on a belief in the invisible world. Cotton Mather, who was a very prominent divine of the time, wrote a book called The Wonders of the Invisible World, which was all about the behavior of, of witches and the devil. And um, this is what people believed, they weren't being hypocrites when they did these things. They were actually scared of of witchcraft and, and the devil, and they believed that the devil could work his way into their community through witches, so it was serious business. Uh, but it was also a hysteria. The surprise to me has been all of this stuff I learned long ago. I thought, nobody's gonna be interested in this again. You know, what good is knowing 17th century theology ever gonna to be to me? or anybody else. Surely nobody's interested. And now suddenly, it's all come back.
0: Now here's part one of my discussion with IU professor of English and International Studies, Pernima Bose, on Totalitarianism and The Handmaid's Tale. Joining us today to examine totalitarian dystopias through the lens of Atwood's fiction is Pernima Bose, an associate professor of English and international studies at Indiana University, where she teaches courses on post-colonial studies. Her research interests include British and American imperialism and South Asian studies, and she is currently working on a project on the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. Thanks for being here, Pernima.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, do you want to give us a quick plot summary of the novel?
3: Sure. The Handmaid's Tale is set in Boston in some version of the near future United States when liberal democracy has been suspended ostensibly because of an infertility crisis in conjunction with political instability. Uh, A group of elites seize control of the government and institute their version of a theocracy, the Republic of Gilead, in which the Bible reigns and rigid gender roles dominate. Women are categorized according to their reproductive capabilities as handmaids to elite men if they are capable of bearing women sorry, bearing children, as housekeepers and as wives. Um, The main character, Kate, has been captured while trying to escape to Canada with her husband and her daughter, and she is uncertain what happens to them. Eventually, she's assigned to be a handmaid to a high-ranking official, the commander, and is then renamed Ofred, which is short for Of Fred, because handmaidens are named after their masters.
0: It was an interesting name. I always wanted—I said of, of Fred in my head, and then right. I said Offred sometimes because um, of the red cloaks, which I, s- I assume will bring up as well, so yes. yeah, I'm sorry.
3: That's fine. So the novel (laughs) weaves together descriptions of her daily life with flashbacks of women's lives prior to the coup. Mm -hmm. And one particular horrifying aspect of the novel is called the ceremony, which is a monthly ritualized form of rape that involves the commander attempting to impregnate Offred while she is lying on top of his wife. If she conceives, the expectation is that the commander and his wife will raise her child and she will eventually be transferred to another household so that she does not develop a strong attachment to the child. Mm -hmm. And so that's the structure of the novel, I guess.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight's show features a discussion about Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale which has been made into a television miniseries by Hulu. Sit there
1: and count your fingers.
0: Um, the, the structure of the novel being uh, pretty basic. It's a story of um, captivity, a story of, as we said, a totalitarian regime that Atwood that projects into the future, and... Um, it's obviously somewhat um, based on present her present at the time. She wrote it in 1984, 85, around right. there.
3: It's published in 1986.
0: So, right at that point, we've got uh, the Iran um, hostage situation. Um, the Berlin Wall comes down in '90, so she's she's in that the the time frame at that at that point is 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 unrest in in communist countries mm-hmm. and things are happening pretty much all over the globe. She in fact is is around the world while right. she's writing it. She's writing it from Berlin,
2: West she, Berlin,
0: West Berlin, um, and so in a sense she's in the middle of this kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we, we talked before, uh, before the, the, the program here. We talked a little bit about uh, some interviews Atwood had done. One that I thought was interesting um, is this perspective that this kind of event uh, can't happen here. Mm-hmm. Like it's uh, the projection of a theocracy in, in the US, um, the liberal democracy as you pointed out. This kind of thing wouldn't happen here. Um, and Atwood says, why not? I mean, why we have things in place. You know, what what are some of the things that, that seem to be in our society here now that Atwood somewhat presciently places in, in her book as well?
3: When the novel came out, feminist the feminist response to it was, this is science fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can't happen here. But for me, it seems that two themes still resonate strongly today. One is uh, connected, obviously, to the question of women's reproduction. Mm. And the other is the curtailment of civil liberties in the national security state. So, in the BBC interview that you mentioned, I think it came out in 2010. 2010, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Atwood mentions that she's – totalitarian states are always concerned with questions of reproduction Mm -hmm. because they want to know what the birth rates are. They want to know which groups are reproducing, and they want to know what the relationship between reproduction and the distribution of resources is in the society. In the novel, as I mentioned before, women are forced to undergo a bizarre degrading form of ritualized rape that gets legitimized through the auspices of the married couple, the commander and his wife. I think um, parallel to this question of reproduction in the novel in our own society would be the assault on women's reproductive rights. And here, not just the challenges to Roe v. Wade that we've encountered for as long as we've had the legislation, but also recently state ballot initiatives to confer so-called personhood rights on fetuses. And even though these were rejected in several states during the 2012 election, including Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Colorado, Advocates have not given up in Colorado and Mississippi, and a ballot measure will appear in the North Dakota um, election in 2014. Other parallels, I think, are um, the role of women and how often women participate in the oppression of other women. So in the novel, we get the presence of the commander's wife, Serena Joy, who formerly was a televangelist.
0: How do you say that word? (laughs) Televangelist. yeah. Tammy Faye Baker. Tammy Faye Baker,
3: Mm -hmm. musician woman on television who made a career of speaking and testifying to other women about the desirability of being wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. And when, um, let's see, when Atwood is writing in 1984, Phyllis Schlafly was Mm -hmm. very much a presence on the U.S. landscape. She is, of course, for those who aren't old enough to remember, (laughs) she is the founder of the Eagle Forum, which is a very conservative um, organization. And in Phyllis Schlafly, you had a woman traveling the lecture circuit and urging other women to be full-time mothers and wives while herself being a lawyer, editor of a monthly newsletter, regular speaker at conservative rallies, and a political activist. Uh, So there's a whole reproductive angle. Mm -hmm. The other angle that remains prescient, I think, is the parallels regarding the national security um, in the army, in the novel, the army shoots the president and machine guns Congress, and then declares a state of emergency. Interestingly, the army blames the unrest and violence on Islamic fan- fanatics. Mm-hmm. So Atwood describes how then the army suspends the Constitution, and there's a line in the novel that still is, is, is very chilling to me, and that is quote There wasn't even an enemy you could put your finger on mm-hmm. end mm-hmm. quote. And so here I think the a plot does seem prescient of the War on Terror with its declaration of war against a concept that is terrorism rather than um, a concrete nation-state. And, of course, uh, what some perceive, rightfully, I think, is a curtailment of civil liberties in legislation like the Patriot Act.
0: Shall we gather at the it's time for a break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We listen to Shall We Gather at the River, performed by the Hee Haw Gospel Quartet. This was a favorite hymn of the great American film director John Ford, appearing in seven of his movies, including his seminal works Stagecoach and The Searchers, both starring John Wayne. It's also interesting to note the song was performed at the 1980 funeral of American Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas who was, quote, the most doctrinaire and committed civil libertarian ever to sit on the court, unquote. More on the dystopian vision of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale when Interchange returns on WFHB.
4: Shall we gather at the river Where bright angels the be betrothed With its crystal tide forever
0: Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show tonight features a discussion on Margaret Atwood's dystopian fiction, The Handmaid's Tale, which has surfaced once again to be produced by television for Hulu, starring Elizabeth Moss in the role of the protagonist, Alfred. We're revisiting a 2013 interview I did with Pranima Bose about the novel, and we're also revisiting a Margaret Atwood interview from 2006 with Bill Moyers. We'll hear from Atwood first.
2: The theocracy that I've put in The Handmaid's Tale never calls itself Christian. And in fact, it never says anything about Christianity whatsoever. It's, it's slogans, etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera, are all from the Old Testament. So what has amazed me was the rapidity with which a number of Christians put up their hands and said, this is an insult to us. What did it mean? It mean they hadn't read the book. It meant they hadn't read the book. Because in the book, the regime does what all such regimes immediately do. It eliminates the opposition. The Bolsheviks got rid of their nearest ideological neighbors, the Mensheviks, as soon as they had the power. They killed the lot, you know, too close to them. They got rid of any other socialists. They wanted to be, be the only true church brand of socialists. So any theocracy in this country would immediately eliminate all other competing religions if they could. So the Quakers in my book have gone underground. Right. And the regime is wiping out little pockets of resistant Baptists here and there and uh, stringing up nuns, etc., <laughs> which is exactly how they would operate because that's what happens under those kinds of arrangements. You want to be the power, the only power, anybody who could be a rival power you got rid of them.
0: Even though it's a, a conversational novel, it's a mm-hmm. it's a documentary of sorts of of uh, of Fred uh, telling her story. Um, there's there's not really a lot that happens. Um, and you're just sort of seeing her daily life, but you experience all of these, um, degrading events, but they're degrading to the, to all parties in some sense. Now we would, uh, we argue in a totalitarian state, there are the pinnacle, you know, people at the top do well. Um, but there's a sense in the novel as well that even the commander her commander her fred uh who is who is the person she's she has to make babies with basically right. in, in that 's her only role uh, even he seems I don't know, uh, uh, under guard. Um, he can only do so many things. He does things in a black market sort of way himself. So there's no real sense of of, of um, government, really, that we get a sense of because we have her perspective only. Mm-hmm. But we have, as you say, a, a, a commitment to, to reproductive limitations, but also the focus on um, – Fertility mm-hmm. is, is, is key here as well because it turns out that Atwood notes that there was some sort of uh, ecological. Fallout event, act act of some sort, or just c- cumulative acts of our ecological um, malfeasance mm-hmm. as a, as a as a human species—that something has gone wrong.
3: Well, in the epilogue, the scholars who are tacked on at the end note that there have been a series of nuclear disasters, mm-hmm. and then also um, contamination of mm-hmm. the soil and water through pesticide use, right. among other things. Right.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight's show features a discussion about Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which has been made into a television miniseries by Hulu. Sit there
1: and count your fingers
0: it it struck me i i've been doing a little research on Rachel Carson mm-hmm. and you know this is a, her book from 1962 i think it was silent spring talks about biocides and and really brings uh, sterility to the fore in that book too the the animals themselves are sterile and and these things could come forward into the human population as well and the book seems to be in that space mm-hmm. and some in somewhat i get a feeling that the rest of it is somewhat just built around that event. These things are going to happen. And if a catastrophe happens, then what? And the theocracy is an easy template mm-hmm. in a sense. We've seen it before, and Atwin has said this herself. This is not future events. These, these are past events that I'm putting in the future. What are some of those past events that she brings brings forward?
3: She is quite emphatic in that interview that you mentioned of saying that she decided uh, that she would only represent forms of uh, events that had happened before historically. So in the novel, we get um, obviously public executions, um, including hangings and tearing apart of people who are designated guilty as a way of terrorizing the population into behaving. The people are assigned different uniforms according to their status in society. So the handmaids are given red outfits. I think you have opinions or <laughs> right, thoughts on right. that. Well, red, red Red
0: we, we see throughout... Um, uh, history in, in, in many ways, but red, you have Red Riding Hood in, in a fable sort of way. The, the, um, the little girl who, who transgresses wears a, a red, red cowl and cape. Um, she's a bad little girl in that particular fable, and bad things happen. Um, there is also The Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. uh, Nathaniel Haw- Hawthorne's story of, of Puritan adultery, which is, um, was often um, um, punished by death. Um, or banishment. And things of this nature happen throughout our past in, the, in this country. A uh, Puritan Puritans in particular, uh, next, sitting next to what, what were commercial interests, uh, colonies, or uh, villages that were based on actually just getting resources for another country, sat next to, uh, beside the Puritan villages, which were there really to form their own state, a theocratic state, mm-hmm. uh, which was hierarchically dominated by a priestly caste as much as anything else,
3: Yeah. Yes, and then in the novel too, the wives are assigned blue dresses, mm-hmm. which I think is supposed to be evocative of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. So you specifically have a kind of virgin whore dichotomy mm-hmm. built mm-hmm. into the color scheme of the outfits. There's also references to different degrees of veiling and covering, um, which of course are a strong part of the Christian tradition as well as the Islamic one. Um, there are incidents of forced childbearing and then the appropriation of the results, and. The children of these women are then placed with high government officials. And one thinks here, of course, of Argentina and of women who were disappeared, uh, deemed opponents of the regime during the dirty war of the military dictatorship in 76 to 1983, whose babies and children were then placed with military and government families. Um, there is a forbidding of literacy, so women are not allowed to read or write in the novel. And, of course, historically in the United States, there, have been, there were pro- prohibitions against teaching African Americans mm-hmm. to read and write during slavery. And then, of course, the big thing is the denial of property rights mm-hmm. to women in the novel. And um, in American colonial times, the law generally followed that of English common law which um, for women's property was always under the control of their husbands, and eventually states gave limited property rights to women.
0: Yeah, this hasn't been much of a change. In, in, <laughs> right. yeah, this um, We still live in, in somewhat right. similar circumstances today. Um, there are a couple of interesting things there, too. The the reading part, you know, we, we won't teach, we won't make that mistake again, I think the commander says at right. some point. And it is true that um, this is also interesting religiously. The Uh, Prior to the Bible even being translated into a tongue that that you and I might read uh, if we weren't of a priestly caste, um, uh, we wouldn't even have known what the Bible said. And we'd have to rely on the priest, rely on our religious fathers to to tell us what God said, to tell us what the Bible said. And and this is a a pretty particular um, prohibition in here as well as the commander reads the bible after after meals or in ceremonies and nobody else can
3: right Mm -hmm. and in fact you had mentioned earlier that uh, nobody seemed happy in this society including the commander Yeah. so one of the things that becomes really quite clear in the novel is that the commander has a very impoverished relationships with women and his way of circumventing or uh, challenging the authority of the state is to try to establish a kind of emotional intimacy with Offred, which he's absolutely forbidden to do. And he does that, of course, through language and through inviting her for these secret trysts, which mm-hmm. consists essentially of them playing Scrabble <laughs> right,
0: right. Of, of using words. words yeah, right. of using words, which is also a, a great a great transgression right. too. Yeah. it's time for another break this is save a soul in every town by the christians from their self-titled 1987 album won't you take them by the hand come on and lead them from this barren land back with more patriarchal theocratic musings when interchange returns on wfhb
1: need you Cause when be, I was down and out be, You had be, me scream and shout be, be show. You hear others who need you Won't you take them by the hand Come on and lead them from this barren land Won't you save us all in so save a soul, every time. Yeah. Save a soul, every time. Save a soul, every time. Oh, yeah. a soul every time yeah. You can save me from myself. Won't you save somebody else? I know I no longer need you. Cause when I was down. Now. Show. You hear others who need you. Won't you take them by the hand? save every time save soul every save soul every save soul to save soul i want to save soul
0: oh come on welcome back I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight's show features my 2013 interview with IU professor Purnima Bose on Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. As the novel finds another iteration currently in Hulu's serial adaptation, and the technical possibilities of instantaneous wealth capture become more readily possible, how hard now to simply suspend and transfer all money sitting in bank accounts? we must again consider the ways of theocratic men in relation to the creature born of his bone and flesh. Genesis 223. Margaret Atwood opens the segment with the way totalitarianism might come to the US.
2: If you're going to change the United States from a democracy into a totalitarianism, how would you go about doing it? Well, you wouldn't say, let's all be communists. You wouldn't get any takers for that. Uh, You might say a rather twisted sort of thing that that would say, in order to preserve our freedoms, we have to give them up for now. You might say something like that, which is kind of, I think, what's been floating in the breeze this last little while. In order to preserve freedom, we have to demolish freedom. Something like that. Uh, But you're more likely to say, um, this is the true religion follow our flag <laughs> uh, that kind of
0: thing well it is nice to to bring up that that personal perspective in the novel or to think of uh, our, our, our heroine our protagonist uh, Alfred as having um, an emotional life there there is kind of a you know um, you're you're asked to believe in in her. Mm-hmm. You're asked to to feel what she feels. It's difficult as it's only of Fred and it's only in in a kind of a, a, a restatement of her, a, a kind of an autobiography of a time, and so she tells you flashback uh, c- uh, conversations with her mother, flashback conversations with the best friend, mm-hmm. um, where you start to get. Those, those conversations are what, what I would say are real life. You, know, you get the sense that this, this might have happened in, in the 60s and, and 70s before all this other stuff happened where you could have these kind of conversations. And you cannot have any conversations anymore. This is another right. really, really important factor of the novel. There is no talking to anybody you know you talk in the typologies you know you type you talk in the way you your particular role requires you to talk right and talk so back. lines
3: are scripted praise be right
0: personally i'm I've, i was always just kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall right you know the whole the whole book i've been waiting for the to to discover what i, I i'll try not to give away but the sense that there there has to be some thing happen as a reader i want i want the book to tie tie together romantically in some sense. And we had talked about this in a previous conversation that, you know, this kind of book to me is, is almost uh, a romance. It's not a horror story, even though it is. You know, guns, there are guns, there are, there are everything terrible in it. But you get the sense that there should be some sort of hope in this kind of book.
3: Well, a couple of uh, points that you make I think are interesting and we could elaborate on. One is that the novel is written in this first person point of view, which mm-hmm. is through Offred, except for the epilogue, which is this very dry transcript mm-hmm. of an academic conference that happens many years later. Okay. Um, and so we do get Offred weaving her story together through of the Gilead regime with flashbacks of her past. And what I find interesting is uh, the flashbacks are... We are introduced to several female characters who represent a range of feminist and women's responses to the regime. So we mm. get pictures of Ofred's mother, who's a strident 70s feminist mm. activist and who's very anti-porn mm-hmm. and participating in pornography burnings, which one senses is probably not a good thing Mm -hmm. in the values of of the novel. We also get Moira, who, as you mentioned, is her best friend and a fearless lesbian who actively resists the regime. And then we get Janine, who is this uh, minor character, a handmaid, who acquiesces to the regime and essentially goes insane. Um, So a variety of responses. Ofred, I think we identify with her because she's very familiar to us. Mm -hmm. So she's the woman who is both Um, someone who is a professional librarian on the one hand, but who also derives a great deal of her identity through being a wife and a mother. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the point of view, though, is Ofred is what literary critics would call an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she's constantly challenging the status of the novel and her telling of events. And this yeah. is particularly true mm-hmm. when she tells us about having sex with Nick mm-hmm. the first time, mm-hmm. when she gives us three different versions.
0: Yeah, and Nick is the, uh, so- something of the butler uh, mm-hmm. in some sense, although he's also many other things in the book. But he's always around. He, he cleans the car. He takes care of the commander. He drives places. And, and he becomes a-, a-, a sexual fantasy for her and then a, a reality As far as we know.
3: I don't know if it's giving too much away to say that the commander's wife at a certain point has an epiphany that perhaps the commander himself is sterile. Mm -hmm. And she is represented as being this impoverished person, emotionally impoverished, because she really wants to be a mother. And she also is jealously, uh, very jealous of her husband and any emotional attachments that he has to handmaids. Sure. So she suggests – and there's a sort of contingent solidarity that arises between these two women who should be adversaries. Mm. Um, But the commander's wife suggests to Ofra that she uh, have sex with Nick Mm -hmm. in order to conceive.
0: Yeah, because he he may in fact be um, fertile. Yeah. Yeah, or potent. Um, And yes, uh, the commander
5: may not be. Yes. Crazy for Christ. I'm crazy for loving you.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Tonight's show features a discussion about Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which has been made into a television miniseries by Hulu.
5: Crazy. Crazy for
3: feeling so lonely. But I just want to say something yeah, about your sure. sort of desire for a happy ending, which yeah, yeah. is kind of um, conventional, dark, oh, yeah, sure. right? Oh, uh, sure. Entirely is. Between yes. Nick yeah. And,
0: Enti- entire. Well, I want Kay. more than that. You know, I want the the entire story to to come out the way it starts, and the flashback of the happy family, right? So there's there's always in this, and it's part of how. How i worried about betrayal in the book, mm-hmm. too, that I wanted these things to come. I wanted her to find her husband. I wanted mm-hmm. her to find her daughter. I wanted her to everything to tie up nicely because right. that's, you know, that's how I began to read in my life, you mm-hmm. know, in stories that that wrap up nicely and and solve problems. And this this book is about leaving problems on the table, even though, as you mentioned, there's a historical note at the end, which uh, attempts to, uh, discuss the tale as a historical document Mm -hmm. and decide whether it's real or not, or, or authentic and where it was recorded and things of this nature. And, but the whole time I want there to be good happening. Um, but I, and I mentioned this before too, I, I did the same thing with 1984. Um, I simply wanted Winston and Julia to make it on their own, you know, to leave uh, Oceania and, and go somewhere and be happy. And I know that's conventional. And, and it's part of what the author knows, too. You know, they set, you set up that kind of perspective, you know, you'll find happiness here. No, you won't. Or you'll find it here. No, you won't.
3: But yeah. it's not the point of totalitarian regimes to <laughs> curtail well, the it possibilities is, sure. for self-actualization yeah, you know, well, definitely. or couple actualization. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and but it's why you want the individual mm-hmm. to be against it. We become really, uh, I think, allied to the narrator, and she's speaking to us, and we feel for her and root for her. But does that help us see her dilemma more clearly or turn this into more of an entertainment story, a horror story? Is, In a sense, is Atwood successful a- at writing something that is um, a-, a thinking tool, uh-huh. or does it become a piece of entertainment?
3: Now, I read the novel in 1987, and mm-hmm. this was right on the cusp of del- discovering feminist theory. Mm-hmm. At that point in my life, I was much younger then. I really did read it as entertainment and mm-hmm. as science fiction. I taught it a couple of years ago in a post-colonial novel class, mm-hmm. and I had a very different reaction to it as did the students, mm-hmm. the students immediately recognized the contemporary United States mm-hmm. in this description of Gilead. Mm-hmm. And I think they did so because they are, again, post 9-11 generation right. and because they are grappling with um, I think there's a generational shift in the United States and that older people tend to be politically much more conservative than um, the students or my students in class today. So mm-hmm. they were, are very cognizant of the fact that um, women's rights are, are being eroded or the serious attempts to curtail things like reproductive freedoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that perspective, I don't read it as inter- entertainment. I do think it's interesting – um, to contrast the novel with the film version, mm. right? So the, the film version was made in 1990 with Natasha Richardson mm-hmm. and Aidan Quinn. Mm, okay, sure. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's right. And um, I've forgotten the name of the commander. He's a really famous actor.
0: I didn't see it, sorry.
3: Okay, well, I watched it last <laughs> night just in preparation for this interview. And in the film version, they radically alter the mm. uh, ending. It's The screenplay is written by a very famous playwright, Harold Pinter. Mm. I don't think it would be spoiling the novel, the reading of the novel on FHB to say that in the film version. Um, the novel ends with Ophred assassinating the commander, oh. and then being whisked away with by Nick.
0: By Nick, right? The Mayday. Mayday. The, a mayday yes. guard, right? A uh, in the black
3: van, mm. which is essentially as- associated with this the terrorist oh, state. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the last uh, scene has her in a camper, waiting the birth of a child, which we assume is Nick's child. Oh, okay. Um, so she's in rebel liberated Maine.
0: It has a total recall sort of feel to it. Exactly. I'm not, not not the not total recalled Terminator, where the, the strong woman in Terminator is, is on the run and has her child mm. and is escaping the, the totalitarian machines, basically.
3: Well, interestingly, in the um, last scene, she's all by herself except for her dog. Mm, yeah. And she tells us that, you know, Nick sends word from the front whenever he's able. But the yes. assumption is that there's going to be this reconstitution of the heterosexual mm. family, okay. mm-hmm. um, presumably in some more oh. egalitarian state. So it's a very different ending because it I is. think um, the novel ends much more ambiguously.
0: That is conventionally, as you say, uh, of my own reading, that's a <laughs> conventional expectation. You'd want, you know, you'd want the family to come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Soft as the voice of an angel, For our final break, we've got the hymn Whispering Hope, sung by Pat Boone. Member of the Gospel Music Hall of Fame and one-time host of Bible studies sessions for celebrities such as Doris Day, Glenn Ford, Zsa Zsa Gabor, and Priscilla Presley. More on the present resonance of the dystopian theocracy of Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaid's Tale* when interchange returns on WFHB.
6: Over. Wait till life's tempest is done. Hope for the sunshine tomorrow After the sunshine is gone Whispering hope The gentle persuasion Whispers her comforting word Wait till the darkness is over Wait till life's tempest is done Hope for the sunshine Tomorrow After the sunshine the heart sink away
0: when the dark midnight is over Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's interchange centers on a conversation I had with Pernima Bose in 2013 about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Made into a movie in 1990, it's now been produced for television by Hulu starring Mad Men's Peggy Elizabeth Moss. Was she a kind of handmaid in that series also? Let's begin one last time by hearing from Margaret Atwood on the idea of antinomianism, which undergirds all the actions of a self-proclaimed elect. And then we'll close with Pernima Bose on the way language can be used to obscure the realities of violence.
2: Under antinomianism, you're convinced that you are one of the elect. All right, that you are one of the elect, that you are destined to be elect from birth, that you're going to be saved no matter what, and therefore you can do anything because you're already marked as one of the elect. So that, of course, just lets you do all the most atrocious things you might uh, be inclined to do while still believing that you are justified. I think it's the kind of event that replays itself throughout history when cultures come under stress, when societies come under stress, these kinds of things happen. People start looking around for um, essentially human sacrifices. They, they start looking around for somebody they can blame. Uh, and they feel if only they can demolish that person, then everything's gonna be okay. And it's, it's of course, never. Never true, but there are these periods in history. Things aren't going well, it must be the communists. Let's have Joe McCarthy. Um, you know, things aren't going well, it must be them liberals, <laughs> wherever it may be.
0: Basically, w- what I think we have is um, a novel that we can use as readers to mm-hmm. look at our own are present. Uh, you know, even, you know, it's written in 1985 or 86, it's, it reflects its own particular moment, but it also reflects backward on theocracies through time. There are theocracies now, there are theocracies in in Middle Eastern countries, mm-hmm. but there are also theocratic tendencies everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, to me it seems like mostly governments or people who have the power to change economies, to change military um, directions use things like theocratic ideas to to mobilize um, the events around them. Now, that's maybe that's a little conspiratorial, but you get the sense that these are the kinds of things that motivate populations. Mm-hmm. We're going to believe this one thing. It's going to be right. And if you don't believe it, then you're out. And we're going to do it this way. And if you, you're going to go off to the colonies and clean up toxic waste,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is what happens in the book, uh, or we think it happens in the book. I don't think we know that it happens. Um, we're told it happens. We're told we it don't happens. see it happening. Yeah, Alfred doesn't go there. No. In the book, there is uh, a, a, a particular scene with the commander where they're talking, uh, they're talking about something, but he, he assumes that she can't do math for some reason. Right. I don't remember why. But um, she, she, he says, uh, you know, women are just different than men. You know, one and one and one and one doesn't make four. For to women, women yes. right? For women, and she thinks to herself, "What's he mean?" You know, she hates him, of course. And she said, "What's he mean?" Does she mean I'm, I'm going to think it's three or five? And she asks later, a little bit later, and in between, there's there's an interesting parallel there between her love or uh, for her husband mm-hmm. and Nick, you know, her fantasy for Nick, which she parallels frequently throughout the book. You know, the the transference of those emotions, and she says there is no. There is no similar – I mean, there's a similar idea, but there there's a Nick and there's a Luke. Mm-hmm. And there's not a guy I love that could be either of them. There's a Nick and there's a Luke. And this is part of what – why one a, and one and one and one don't make four. Mm-hmm. They make one. And the commander says that's what women think. One and one and one and one don't make four. They make one and one and one, which is really fascinating. It's a great way to conceive of a kind of uh, analytical or uh, – I'm treading on Larry Summers' ground here. But what, what I mean to say is there, there's a sense that, that we ha- have individuality, and, and that's the woman's perspective in this book, that the, these things are important, you're important, and I'm important. And it's not about making a baby in my womb. It's about the person that's important, the one here in front of us, not just a woman who might make a baby, which is anyone.
3: Right, but I do think that um, the novel is pretty clear about Characterizing the commander and Ofred differently, so the Mm -hmm. commander, when he's saying the one and one and one, that for him is a sign of absolute difference in the genders, right? And so he's abstracted characteristics and projected them onto women. Whereas Ofred, throughout the novel, is trying to understand the experiences through the people around Mm -hmm. her and the people that she cares for. So in that sense, she's much more focused on uh, the concrete, the individual, Mm -hmm. as opposed to these abstract categories. Mm
5: Crazy for pride and I am crazy for loving you. This is Doug Storm on Interchange.
0: Tonight's show features a discussion about Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which has been made into a television miniseries by Hulu.
5: Crazy. Crazy for feeling so lonely.
0: To make things um, achievable that are heinous, mm-hmm. um, we abstract them or we make them detached. And there is another thing in the uh, a scene in the book where they have to uh, they're they're trying to escape prior to all these things happening. And her husband uh, decides that they have to take care of the cat. They can't take the cat with them. Right. They can't leave the cat outside. It'll meow at the door. They can't give it away to a neighbor because somebody will get suspicious. And he says, I'll take care of it. And she says, I knew he meant kill it because he didn't say her, I'll take care of her. He said it. And she said, you have to make things it to kill them. Right. And that's what the book is. It's a, a lot of it.
3: It is a lot of it. Mm. And also uh, a reminder that we, that is people, use language in order to efface the violence against other people and the land and so you get a number of those incidents of naming so for example the ritualized rape is called the ceremony Mm -hmm. there are these um, the salvagings right Mm -hmm. there is a word that's used for public executions which is the salvaging Mm -hmm. and there's another word that's used for ripping apart people that it can't part part
0: participation or something yes, like that exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: um, <laughs> right. and so there you right. get examples of language being used to obscure violence and of course yeah. this is very much a part of the war on terror too yeah. with the All use propaganda. of yeah. phrases like yeah. collateral damage for civilian casualties right. or enhanced interrogation yeah. to name torture yeah. um, this is something that's very common in our society i did want to come back to a point since you mention Lawrence Summers, oh, uh, sure. who was the chief economist for the World Bank before he played a role in both the Clinton administrations and the Obama administrations. And you alluded to some statements he'd made when he was president of the Har- Harvard University, suggesting that women were not as capable mm-hmm. of doing abstract thinking involved in mathematics and science. Um, what people forget is that before he made those comments, of course, he had put written a very, I think, Egregious and immoral memo, in his capacity as an economist for the World Bank, suggesting that uh, Westernized economies should engage in toxic dumping mm-hmm. in the third world because he thought this would be cost-effective means of, of taking care of of waste and. Also because he pointed out in this memo that was leaked to some environmentalists that um, actually it's only people in the higher income strata who really make noises about clean and a clean environment both for health reasons and yeah. for aesthetic reasons interestingly, in the novel of course um, the the toxic dump sites are called the colonies mm-hmm. right so right, there's a sort right. of I guess linguistic link that Atwood is making between these former colonized countries and their that now their exploitation right. in this regime as well. Mm -hmm. And this is a place where we're told that political dissidents, including um, we think Ofred's mother, the feminists, like Mm the 70s feminists, Mm -hmm. are shipped out in order to clean up the toxic waste without any uh, protective Mm -hmm. gear. So it's literally death sentence.
5: Crazy Crazy for feeling So lonely
0: That's our show. We'll close with Crazy, written and performed by Willie Nelson, and featured on the soundtrack of the 1990 film version of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, but there performed by Patsy Cline.
5: I live Love me as long as you want it.
0: Thanks to Pranima Bose, who joined us via a 2013 Custom House interview, and the magic of someday. our digital archives at WFHB.org. Thanks to Margaret Atwood, who continues to narrate our doom. Should I thank her for that? At least we've got a good chance to see it coming. Which is to say, keep your eyes wide and maybe read some history, as Atwood has made plain. We've seen it all before. Next week, a 90-minute special featuring Fela Kuti, the Nigerian multi-instrumentalist, musician, composer, pioneer of the Afrobeat music genre, human rights activist, and political maverick. Kuti died in 1997 at the age of 58. We'll hear songs like Zombie, Coffin for Head of State, Water No Get Enemy, and many more. This is another episode in our continuing series with Rasul Moat, The Sounds of Resistance. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob I'm Schoon is assistant producer and Jennifer Brooks trying. is board engineer. Our executive crazy producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Crazy.
5: Crazy. Crazy for feeling so lonely. I am crazy, crazy for feeling so blue. I knew that you'd love me as long as you wanted. day you leave me for somebody new Worry Why do I let myself worry Wondering What in the world did I do? Crazy for thinking that my love could hold you I'm crazy for trying, crazy for crying And I'm crazy for loving you.